I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Lodge. Welcome to Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, while at the same time, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, until you make exercising a cornerstone of your daily routine. Because Freemasonry is work, brethren, you must put in the work. And when we put in work, we come closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic muscle. We give you more light, but no light waits. Welcome back. Welcome back, brethren. And it's been a pretty good, pretty good weekend. We're in, uh, was it Palm Sunday? Yeah. Uh, for those of you believers out there and non-believers, it's out there, right? It's been going on for quite quite some time. So I want to get right to it. The first thing I want to do is read an email from one of our listeners, Cliff. Cliff. Cliff just wrote in. He says, uh, past second degree proficiency. And I was told I'm going to do the questions and answers at our next uh, second degree in the fall. So my third degree is scheduled for April 30th. And then he says, I did a smaller version of my Valley of Jehoshaphat workout Tuesday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, talking about that in another podcast episode here. Uh, Cliff created another routine, just like um, <clears throat> Cole Kubicki. He created a Masonically inspired workout routine. Well, so did Cliff. And it's, it's, a, it's a smoker. I like it. You guys... Your little lizard brains are working. Now, I know most of you, you're, if you're listening, you're probably listening to other podcasts. I listen to Whence Came You. I listen to the Masonic Roundtable, the Fraternal Review podcast. Yes, the Traveling Man. That's a pretty new. I think we started at the same time. And the uh, past master over there, uh, what's his name? I think I wrote it down here somewhere. Well, anyhow... Uh, he's doing a pretty good job. Uh, meet, act, and part, and uh, you know, fi- uh, Freemasonry in two minutes, you know, by uh, uh, Christopher Earnshaw. But one of my cooler ones, and then Joe Rogan, of course, right? We listen to Joe Rogan all the time. Uh, the Order of Man, I love that one. The Confessionals, though, for those of you who like, who like the mysterious and uh, you know. Uh, hearing about cryptids and haunted places and ghosts and UFOs and, you know, the Illuminati and just all kinds of strange and paranormal, you know, the, the, uh, the outer fringe topics, the confessionals. Yeah, with Tony Merkel. I've been following him for, for five or six years now, and he's just been getting better and better. He's moving to Tennessee, I believe now. And another one I like is Masonic Improvement out of Texas. Uh, uh, those guys are great. Solomon Staircase from Solomon Staircase Lodge, number 357. Yeah, they do something very unique, something I thought about uh, that I thought should always be being done. And that is they're reading, I believe, uh, Mackey's Masonic Encyclopedia. And I'm not sure if they're doing it one at a time or they're just experimenting, but it's a good idea. Because you're getting your audio book, basically, and you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. 
And so, and it's consistent. So you can come back to it. You know, uh, I can't remember if they're doing it uh, day after day or one at a, you know, one per week. They read one chapter per week. But if you stay consistent like that, you're going to get more out of it. And so kudos to you, brothers at Solomon Staircase 357. And another one that I like is Sasquatch Chronicles, man. I mean, I, I believe I started, I uh, stumbled upon that back in like 2016, I think. Uh, when Wes, I think, and Woody, I think the brother started it. And all it was is just people, he, they allowed people to call in or write their story to them through email form and tell them about their encounter, whatever it may be. And, man, there have been some wild, wild stories. You would be amazed, shocked. And if you're incredulous, well, hey, you know, you're not going to listen to it, but Anyhow, uh, one of my favorite all time is the SpongeBob one, and uh, there's a buddy that I that I turned on to that podcast because he's a big Bigfoot, uh, you know, believer enthusiast. And I remember when he finally heard, you know, the the SpongeBob episode. It it, it was, <laughs> I mean, wow, wow, who would have thunk it? But uh, sure enough, uh, there it is. Um, all right. So what I wanted to get down to is, you know, when I started this podcast, I was uh, really focused on and I'm still going to continue to be focusing on the mysterious origins of Freemasonry. You know, 1390, the Regis Manuscript, the oldest manuscript that has to do with Freemasonry. Uh, it's an actual, you know, it's a document. And some some researchers say, well, yeah, you know, like 1390, 1420. Uh, what what they what they can gather though from where it came from is that more than likely it was written by a monk. And so the Cistercian monks, the Benedictine monks, were very prominent during that time in that region where it came out of. Came out of Scotland, and. Uh, and they were around, they were prominent because they had a lot of monasteries around there. And the, uh, some of the connecting dots there is that at that time when these monasteries began to, you know, become more and more uh, prominent in these areas in the world at that time in Europe, it was the Knights Templars who was funding the actual buildings of these temples. And the Cistercian monks, I'm not sure if out of... Uh, a need or they desire to become builders they became builders and because of that they became known as master craftsmen so there's other you know points of similarity and today what i'm going to get into is a talk that was given for the philalethes society by a brother ca cn batham and this was back in 1992, June. Uh, it's, it's, the first part is seven pages, and you're going to have to bear with me, but if you do, it'll be worth it. And I'm going to skip down uh, quite a number of paragraphs and begin with something that we all should be going back to time and time again, and that is some of the origins of our Grand Lodge, right? And he says this, by way of introduction, 
I would remind you that the premier Grand Lodge of England, the mother Grand Lodge of the world, was founded on 24 June 1717 in a tavern with the delightful name of the Goose and Gridiron Alehouse in St. Paul's Churchyard, London. It subsequently acquired the nickname of the Grand Lodge of the Moderns. 34 years later, on 17 July 1751, a rival Grand Lodge, nicknamed the Grand Lodge of the Ancients, came into existence. For well over 100 years, its founders were looked upon without exception as schismatic, as men who had turned their backs upon the Mother Grand Lodge of the world, and in violation of their Masonic obligations, were determined to destroy it and replace it with the Grand Lodge of their own making. No words were bad enough for such traitors. And it was not until 1887, when Henry Sadler published his Masonic Facts and Fictions, that truth was established. He was able to prove that, in the main, those founders were Irishmen temporarily resident in London, members of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, who had never owned allegiance to the Grand Lodge of England, humble men who had not been made welcome in English Masonic circles and who were concerned only with establishing a Grand Lodge in London under whose auspices they could practice the form of Freemasonry they had known in their native country of Ireland. Why do I tell you this? To emphasize that just because something has always been accepted throughout the entire Masonic world, it is not necessarily true. The theory I am going to challenge, and it is no more than a theory, is the transition theory of the origin of non-operative or speculative Freemasonry. It was supported by the great Masonic historians R.F. Gold, and more recently by my predecessor as Secretary of Quarter Coronati Lodge, the late brother Harry Carr. All right. The transition theory holds that men not actively involved in the operative Mason's trade were admitted into operative Mason's lodges, lodges that were concerned solely with matters relating to the Mason's trade, and that as the Mason's trade declined, these outsiders became sufficiently numerous to be able to take control of those lodges. And by eliminating the trade aspects entirely, they were able to change the ceremonies and gradually bring about the evolution of our present-day non-operative or speculative Freemasonry. The theory is that as this happened in Scotland, which in any case I very much doubt, therefore it must have happened in England as well. But with the exception of one lodge on the border, which was more Scottish than English in character, there is no evidence that any non-operative was ever admitted into an operative lodge in England, let alone enough to outnumber the operative members. Nor is there any evidence that any English operative lodge ever changed to a non-operative basis. Moreover, and I wish to emphasize this at the outset, although it is known that some Scottish lodges changed from operative to non-operative, this does not mean it was as a result of non-operative members obtaining control. Thus, although no English lodge can show that it was active before 1717, three Scottish lodges can prove their existence prior to 1598, 
at least 119 years earlier, and others are well documented in the early or mid-17th century. Time out for a drink. Ah. Back to our program. Both trade and social conditions generally differed vastly in the two countries. So there is no foundation whatsoever for stating that there must have been similar developments in the two countries. The population of Scotland was only about one-sixth of that England, and the building trade in Scotland was very small, being confined mainly to the southern part of the country. Its concentration there made it possible for control of the trade to be exercised by municipal authorities rather than by the individual lodges, as was the case in England. Communication between the two countries was virtually non-existent, Relations between the two people were bad. The two countries had always been enemies, frequently at war, and there were no cultural or economic ties between them. In England, the building trade was many times greater and was scattered over the whole country. A considerable number of written records survive. If there had been a period of transition in England, similar to that in Scotland, then these records would inevitably have recorded it but they do not. Moreover, there was no decline in the building industry at this time. Indeed, more especially in the 17th century, it had never been in a more flourishing condition. In England, there was, in fact, a revolution in the building industry in which there was no place for the temporary independent Masonic Lodge, which in any event leaves no trace later than the 16th century the seeds of trade unionism were being sown, though Scotland as yet was immune from this. In an article in the book Grand Lodge, 1717 to 1967, which was published by the Grand Lodge of England in 1967, Brother Harry Carr wrote of the transition theory as though it was an established fact. This is unfortunate as, although the book was an official Grand Lodge publication and therefore bore the stamp of authority, the opinions expressed in the articles were those of the individual contributors, not necessarily approved by the Grand Lodge of England. Nevertheless, many brethren have assumed that Brother Carr's account was officially accepted. It must therefore be emphasized that his views have been challenged by several writers since then, and as, as he had to admit it to me, there is no, not a shadow of proof to support the theory he had put forward. The theory that I am presenting is that within the English monasteries, there were inner sancta, with membership restricted to senior and learned brethren, in which time-honored rites were practiced, and that on the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII in 1538, followed by the disendowment of the religious fraternities in 1547, Although most of them disappeared, some survived as secret cells until late in the 16th or early in the 17th century. Then, in more favorable conditions, they emerged, expanded, and gradually evolved into the form of speculative Freemasonry known to us today. I cannot prove this. I can only demonstrate that it probably happened, but as I have already explained, there is no 
proof either of the transition theory nor of any other theory of Masonic origins that has been suggested from time to time. In putting forward my theory on a previous occasion, I was told that it seems to rest on a faulty syllogism. In the 17th century, there were secret societies and plots. In the 17th century, Masonic lodges existed. Therefore, Masonic lodges had to take on a cloak of secrecy. That charge I deny. It is necessary, therefore, to examine each aspect of my theory in turn. The first is to decide whether there could have been inner sancta in the monasteries. In every order throughout history, including Freemasonry, there have been degrees or stages. The novice or initiate, call him what you will, has never been admitted to the full knowledge, to the complete mysteries of the order. There has always been some ultimate stage restricted to the enlightened few, but because it was so secret, so exclusive, so restricted, written records are virtually non-existent and, as is the case of monastic cells, very difficult to prove. I will not ask you to rely on my opinions. What do others have to say about the possibility? J.E. Neal, Queen Elizabeth, refers to a formidable and secret organization within the Protestant Church. H.M.F. Prescott, the man on a donkey, records that Robert Ashe inaugurated a secret body of men and imposed on them an oath. In Born in Blood, John J. Robinson writes, Lollardy indeed was subsequently driven underground and did exist for a couple of centuries in secret cells all over England. Brother Colin Dyer, some thoughts on the origins of speculative Freemasonry, states, the entry on the Reformation in the Encyclopedia Britannica refers to religious societies in the 1500s in which the members addressed each other as brethren. Bernard Jones, Freemason's Guide and Compendium, is more explicit. There is reason to believe that hidden away within some of the craft's mysteries was sometimes a religious mystery, a secret cell. We seem to miss some evidence that would more amply and def definitely link up the old charges with our ritual, and we fall back on the idea that within the Mason craft, as within most other medieval crafts, was a quasi-religious body that only just managed to survive the Reformation and the ensuing century and so provided a real but dimly perceived link between the medieval operative and the modern speculative. Straight from operative to speculative in English masonry might to us be a difficult journey, but from operative via a fraternity hidden away at the very heart of the craft and emerging in the days of the Renaissance into an early form of modern symbolic masonry, yes, that is a sequence not only natural, but perfectly credible. What then would have happened to those inner sancta when the monasteries were dissolved. Understandably, as I have already indicated, most would have disappeared. But it is an established fact that from the dawn of history, whenever any movement, especially of religious nature, has been suppressed, elements have survived underground, even those searched for in the most determined manner and even with adherence subject to the direst penalties. 
The early Christians in ancient Rome and members of the underground resistance movements in the last war spring readily to mind. Of such stuff are martyrs made. For such beliefs, man went to the stake or faced a firing squad, often after the vilest torture inflicted to make them reveal details of their activities and to betray the names of accomplices. I suggest that these cells remained underground for 50 years or possibly more, and that eventually they began to emerge and to, be, and to expand. To judge the feasibility of this, it is necessary to consider the conditions in England at that time, and especially during the reign of Queen England, 1558 to 1603. The break with Rome was essentially to establish Henry VIII as head of the church, rather than to alter fundamentally the nature of the faith. There was an extreme form of Protestantism during the short reign of Edward VI, 1547 to 1553, followed by a more extreme form of Catholicism under Queen Mary, 1553 to 1558. But even then, Englishmen, and especially Catholics, must have been very apprehensive, as there was a powerful opposition to the Spanish influence of Mary's husband, Philip II of Spain. This was shown in the, in the attempt to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne, the queen, for nine days. Further, with Mary failing to produce an heir, Protestant Elizabeth was next in line to the throne. During Elizabeth's reign, the problem of religion dominated not only aspects of domestic affairs, but foreign policy as well, especially as far as France, Spain, and the Netherlands were concerned. The acts of supremacy and uniformity were enacted when she ascended the throne. The former constituted her a head of all religious and civil affairs, and the latter not only established Protestantism as the official religion, but prohibited the practice of any other faith, Roman Catholicism in particular, and it laid down severe penalties for all who acknowledged or supported the authority of the Pope in England. In spite of this, the majority of Englishmen remained Catholic at heart, and this problem was the gravest concern of Elizabeth's ministers, who constantly had to face the threat of rebellion at home and of foreign invasion at the instigation of the more militant Catholics who had fled to the continent. The most active of Elizabeth's ministers in the religious controversies was her secretary, Sir Francis Walsingham, who lived about 1530 to 1590, who was regarded by Catholics, not without cause, as their most violent enemy and as the minister who was chiefly responsible for the extreme way in which the Queen's religious policy was carried out. His duty was to give effect to the decisions of the Privy Council, acting within the laws of the Parliament, but his rabid Protestantism inevitably had a bearing on the way in which he interpreted them. Early in his life, when Catholic Mary ascended the throne, he had fled to Padua in Italy, where he obtained a complete insight into the methods employed by the statements of the province, of whom it was said that they had not the maxims of Machiavelli by heart, and or who had got the maxims of Machiavelli by heart, and who used any means, no matter how barbaric, to obtain the information they required. Walsingham turned the experience to his advantage throughout the whole of his career, 
making full use of weapons of cunning and deceit, and building up a vast network of secret agents to catch indiscreet whisperings through every keyhole and behind every uh, arrears. His spies and double agents penetrated every movement and every household suspected of being at variance with, with official government policy, often obtaining substantial rewards for their services. Whilst the most successful secured themselves pensions, Walsingham even succeeded in corrupting the secretary of the French ambassador in London and engaging secret agents to spy on members of their own families. Hmm. He became known as the most subtle searcher out of secrets, nothing being contrived anywhere that he knew not by intelligence. Amongst his other skills, he acquired the knack of opening letters without it being detected, and he was able to decipher even the most complicated codes. He had been a comparatively rich man, but he died poor. Although Queen Elizabeth made him a regular allowance out of the royal escature for bribing spies amounting in 1599 to £2,000 per annum, a very substantial sum in those days, he also spent a considerable amount of his own money on his secret service. How did this affect the members of the secret cells that had survived? By their very training, they would be extreme in their Catholic faith, and so would be in considerable danger, even during the five years that Mary was on the throne. The sole fact that their religious faith differed from the, that prescribed by law was sufficient for them to be subject to precaution and torture, followed by hanging and, while still alive, having their entrails drawn and burned by the executioner, who then quartered their bodies. That sounds horrible to us. But such persecutions was normal, deliberate, habitual, and a fundamental characteristic of the age. There were always individuals who feared any secret organization and, if only to establish their own position with authority, were anxious to denounce its members and see the full rigors of the law applied. No wonder that absolute secrecy prevailed in such groups. When Walsingham returned to England after Queen Mary's death and was appointed by Queen Elizabeth, as her principal secretary of state, their position would have been especially perilous, and it would have been essential for their very survival for them to have remained hidden. Jesuits were entering England in increasing numbers and were inciting the Catholic community to rebellion, while foreign Catholics were promising support by armed invasion. The situation became more dangerous when Mary, Queen of Scots, took refuge in England in 1568. From then until her execution in 1587, there were countless, countless Catholics plots aimed at killing Elizabeth and placing Mary on the throne. In 1570, the Pope declared Elizabeth illegitimate and a heretic, absolved her of, for her subjects from allegiance to her and promised reward and benediction to anyone who attempted to murder her. To Catholics, therefore, Mary of Scotland, the great-granddaughter of Henry VII, was the rightful queen of England, and anyone suspected of even latent Catholicism was in dire danger. One false move or one incautious word 
would be certain to lead to arrest, torture, and execution. Mary's death undoubtedly removed the greatest danger to Elizabeth in particular and to England in general, and the atmosphere in the country as a whole was more relaxed. But English Catholics were still a menace to the realm, if only because of the threat of foreign invasion was still there, as was shown by the arrival of the Spanish Armada in 1588, financed in part by Pope Sixtus V. Even after the defeat of the Armada, Spain and France still remained threats, either directly or through the invasion of Scotland and Ireland. <clears throat> the religious tension was eased after Walsington died and when James I came to the throne, but danger still existed. The stewards, considering themselves to be kings by divine right, largely ignored their Protestant parliament and carried out a pro-Catholic policy. Civil war broke out in 1642, and even after the monarchy was restored, England seemed to be heading for civil war once again, and it was avoided only when the bigoted Catholic James II fled to the continent. In the midst of this turmoil and uncertainty, and under the general pressures of the times, it is not surprising that the later 16th and early 17th centuries saw the proliferation of secret societies formed for purposes for preserving value traditions. And that's the end of part one. Um, and he mentions it so. So a lot of themes are beginning to come together according to this uh, theory by Brother C.N. Batham. And again, this was a lecture given to the Philalethe Society uh, back in June 1992. And uh, I found both parts, and now I am sharing it with you. I like how he says that uh, Brother Carr's, Harry Carr's uh, transition theory, you know, was created, or oh, it sounds like it was created by him, and but that, that there is no evidence that any non-operative was ever admitted into an operative lodge in England, let alone enough to outnumber the operative members. Nor is there any evidence that any English operative lodge ever changed to a non-operative basis. And then he says that it just became like uh, uh, these guys just accepted it. You know, that the, the transition theory, the transition theory is the theory that that uh, Brother Harry Carr wrote about, about us transitioning from operative to speculative. And he says that the opinions expressed in the articles were those of the individual contributors not necessarily approved by the United Grand Lodge of England. And nevertheless, many brethren have assumed that Brother Carr's account was officially accepted. It must therefore be emphasized that his views have been challenged by several writers since then, and as he had to admit to me, there is not a shadow of proof to support the theory he had put forward. This other theory, though, by Cyril, that's his name, Cyril N. Bathams, is intriguing and in alignment with some of what I have uh, already shared with you, uh, some of what I shared with you in the book uh, that I keep mentioning, and of course I'm going to keep going back to it over and over again as, as time needs as time uh, passes on, to continue to build on that knowledge base, right? And 
To strengthen our Masonic knowledge, to strengthen your knowledge of any society that you join or any religious organization or any company is absolutely tatamount, right? So if you, when you join a society, a fraternity like Freemasonry, and you begin to hear the lectures, you begin to hear, you begin to hear phrases that reeks of education. What phrases? Um, well, learning to subdue our passions and improving ourselves in masonry. Learning. <laughs> I mean, that's one. Uh, the attentive ear receives the instruction, you know, from, from the instructive tongue. You hear phrases like such and such is calculated to inculcate in the mind the importance of the study of the liberal arts and sciences that can only happen by studying it and reading it. In youth, as entered apprentices, as entered apprentices, we ought industriously to occupy our minds in the attainments of useful knowledge. And that goes both ways. You useful knowledge is attained both by going out and doing. You know, you're showing it. Okay, now you do it, and then also reading. But I think the majority of us actually learn more and quicker by actually getting out there and doing it. That's when we really begin to, to learn. And our learning accelerates because we're actually doing it, and if we fail, we can go back again and, and again and again until we do it right. And you want another one? Sure. All right. Uh, something that I've been saying in some, at the end of some of these podcasts, and that is that uh, he... He that will so demean himself as not to be endeavoring to add to the common stock of knowledge and, and understanding. I mean, that one goes without saying. There's many more. And Freemasonry, for many, has, is, is a educational society. When you take it all for what you see and what you read and what you learn about, it's, it's, it's an educational society. We're supposed to be learning about something. And there's only, and then memorizing wor work. And so if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to learn about something and, and you're going to memorize it, there used to be word to mouth, you know, or, or mouth to ear. And that's the way the ancients did it. This is the way they kept sacred knowledge from being stolen uh, easily. Because if you wrote it down, if you wrote it down on a parchment or some papyrus or what have you, you're, it can be taken and stolen. But if you memorized it, then you became the book. And somehow Freemasonry has retained this practice somewhat. Now, so, uh, before I close out, I'd like to talk a little bit about some uh, some of what's been going on at Palm Springs Lodge number 693. We just recently had another fellowship night out in 
in Palm Springs, right downtown Palm Springs. The La Quinta Brewing Factory has a location there. It's, I mean, it's central. Wow, what a great spot. Still, though, the La Quinta Brewing Factory uh, down in, a, in Palm Desert by the DMV, that's the best location so far. That one, you know, has its, uh, its uh, brewing vats back there. You can take a tour of it. Uh, you can see everything. Uh, you can rent it out uh, for events. It's great. Uh, Brother Steve Sanchez had a fundraiser done there. He knows, uh, I believe, uh, the owner or one of the owners from there. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a great location, and we had our first fellowship night out there in, in that location. And we just recently went to Palm Springs. We had, I believe, five prospects uh, three or four members from Palm Springs Lodge, and we had an impromptu trivium discussion group, you know, Socratic style. And the discussion was, of course, during that time, you know, the slap heard around the world. The slap heard around the world. You know, Will Smith slapped the hell out of Chris Rock in front of everybody. And so the question was, you know, when... When is it appropriate to defend your wife's honor? Because that's what he was saying, I believe. You know, get you know, keep your keep my 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 wife's name out of your mouth. I mean, he he didn't say it as nice like that. After he slapped the hell out of him, you know, he came back and sat down next to his wife, and he kept telling Chris Rock to keep to keep my wife's name out of your mouth but some interesting interesting questions came up because that's what it is when you practice the trivium when you practice the socratic method you ask questions you and the because the question will keep taking you down the rabbit hole to try and understand the narrative to try and understand any uh to try and weed out any fallacious statements, fallacies? Are they trying to appeal to your reason? Are they trying to appeal to your uh, uh, emotion, uh, trying to appeal to authority? What are they trying to do? You know, what are they trying to do? So we had a great conversation, and it takes practice because when you get into conversations like this, the first thing you want to do is say what you believe instead of... Uh, approaching it with an open mind and having a discussion because when you start talking about what you believe uh, you're going to get challenged and then you're going to you, you we tend to double down and once we start learning how to back away from that and learning how to question and really listen to what's being said and how it's being said then you can begin to ask questions because one of the you know one of the uh comments that were made is that that i think it was phrased like this I think we all know that we can't trust anything that the media says. And so the, the follow-up question to that was, is this true? Is this true? We can't trust anything that the media tells us? Not, not one thing? And when you begin to take a step back, put yourself on pause and say, wait a minute. No, nah, there, there are some things. Because one of the prospects who has been you know uh, uh sounding the alarm on that one is uh, shane arch and if you're listening shane 
he's a prospect and he and you know uh, one of the previous trivium discussion groups he 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 was adamant he would not back down he says that can't be possible that we can't trust any you know anything that the media says there there's got to be some things that we can trust that they say and uh, he's right he was right so Shane kudos to you you had uh Aaron Gibb out there he came out all the way from Salton Sea he's working out there he got a great job he's got an awesome Harley Davidson came down parked it wherever the hell he wanted I'm not gonna say because then I don't want him to get in trouble but it was pretty cool when he came out it was I mean right there and uh you know, you have a uh, prospect, Steve Grasha, longtime resident of Palm Springs. He's been doing some research into the history of Palm Springs Lodge. That was pretty interesting, and he's got some pretty interesting things to bring up and uh, things that I had no idea. You had Guillermo Morales, a master mason. He's our uh, current senior steward. He showed up, brought us some pizza. Uh, you had uh, John Stozier, and then you had Marco Estrada, we all had a good time, and we're gonna, we're fixing to have another one here, possibly at the end of this month, where we're going to be up in the Palm Desert area. For those of you listening want to join us, it is open to the public. It is not closed to just members. We go out, we, we fellowship, we find different venues to be able to have these conversations in a more relaxed environment. And, you know, if you like to partake, and some libations, that's the perfect opportunity. You get a cold brew, get yourself a drink, whatever it is, or get yourself some water. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're getting together. We're talking about Freemasonry. We're talking about uh, current events in a more mature manner without choking each other out and trying to punch each other in the head, you know, because uh, you're not agreeing with me. We're finding a medium. We're finding a, a uh, active... Uh, avenue to be able to hold these discussions where it's actually they're actually healthy discussions no one's there to be shot down everyone's there to explore ideas all of a sudden all of a sudden everybody's you know hot to trot for ideas it's it's pretty amazing to see brethren and if you haven't uh, tried something like this at your lodge which is pretty difficult because it's still a lot of members of our lodge uh, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't see the, the masonry, the Freemasonry in it, the benefit probably more than likely. And, you know, this is one of those things where you don't even have to do anything. All you got to do is just show up, show up. Let me take a drink here of this beer. Show up, enjoy our, uh, company. If we uh, have a libation that you want to partake with, go ahead. And more than likely, for those of you brethren who haven't really, really spent more time with us and dedicated more time to the Trivium, I will tell you what I tell the public that comes in. <coughs> Some of them end up becoming prospects. Because the Trivium Discussion Group, the Socratic Discussion Group, is our charitable contribution to the public. And why do we say that? Because 
one of the things that is, I mean, it just sticks out like a sore thumb that is missing and has been missing from our society are intelligent conversations, exploring ideas, not debates, not, you know, not arguments, but a place where we can go and have these discussions. I talked about it a little bit with Brother uh, Jeff Bear, past master of Palm Springs Lodge in one of the podcasts. I think I discussed it a little bit. No, I know I discussed it a little bit with uh, Jim Ridley, past master of Hemet Lodge and our dis past district inspector. And uh, he made it a point to say it on the podcast. You know, I'm surprised you haven't been talking about the Trivium because of of the little piece of, uh, you know, the, this treasure that you have right there that you can really, really utilize and catch fire with this thing. So that's what we do. Uh, you can look it up online. Uh, Trivium, uh, not Trivium, uh, Socrates uh, Cafe. Uh, it was a book. It is a book, actually. You can get it. And the uh, the person who started it, the man who started it, I believe lives in California. And he travels around opening new Socrates cafes all around. They're different names. They, they go by different names, but they go under the Socrates Cafe umbrella. And then there you can learn the rules. You can learn to be a moderator. You can give them a call. But uh, we started it way back in 2017 when I first became master again at Palm Springs Lodge. And thanks to the likes of uh, Matt Jackson, thanks to the uh, and, and his efforts, because he's really passionate and adamant about practicing and giving meat to the public, but also giving meat to any candidate that we have, inner apprentice, fellow craft, or master mason. And this is our way of strengthening our Masonic muscle. And then naturally, you know, you, you want to uh, get out there and exercise. At least I do. And strengthen your Masonic muscle. How? Well, I will tell you how. Because there is something, if you've been to, a, to an installation then you have heard the charge that every single officer is given. And there is a specific charge that is given to one of the first officers that is installed. And that is the Tyler. And what is he told? He is told this. To set a guard over our thoughts a watch at our lips, and post a sentinel over our actions, thereby preventing the approach of every unworthy thought and deed and preserving consciences void of offense toward God and man. I'll read it again. The Tyler, his job, and, he, and he's supposed to have a sword that's kind of wavy, representing the sword that was in the Garden of Eden, protecting the Garden of Eden. And his charge is given to him. And he says that he is charged to set a guard over our thoughts. A watch at our lips. And post a sentinel over our actions. Thereby preventing the approach of every unworthy thought and deed. And preserving consciences void of offense toward God and man. So... The Tyler 
brethren, is supposed to be checking your ass at the door saying, hey, are you all right? Are you okay to come in today? Because you need to check yourself at the door. You need to drop everything that that happened today out there. If you're mad at your wife or you had, you know, you had at it with your boss at work, you just got fired. You need to leave all that. You need to leave all that at the door and come in here clean. And the practice of the trivium and the Socratic method helps us get there. Because we begin to understand what people are truly saying. We begin to learn how to truly listen to what other people are saying. And this forms like a firewall for our minds. Got that? Good. This is Masonic Muscle. It has been another strong strong episode doing the heavy lifting and always always you got to get out there brethren you got to get out there and do the work all right peace out